Before we introduce our speaker uh, here this evening, why don't we open up with a word of prayer uh, together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for, uh, for this day, another day, that you've given us life and breath in your world, an opportunity to explore it and to uh, think about it, to reflect upon it, um, most importantly as we are informed by the wisdom and truth of your word. We ask for um, an enlightening time here this evening as we hear uh, from Dr. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser here in our midst. Bless us, we pray. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Give us good interaction together, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, tonight's uh, event is uh, part of the college's annual Geneva Visiting Artist and Lecture Series and is generously funded by the Staley Distinguished Christian Scholar Lecture Series Endowment. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, the Iva E. Patterson and Dale W. Gilmore Visiting Artist and Lecture Series Fund, endowed by Paul H. Gilmore, Class of 1931. Uh, Dr. Jeff Cole said that I had to, to, to state that here at the beginning uh, to, to give you a sense for, for where the funding is for tonight. Uh, the lecture tonight is part of an annual uh, event held at Geneva College called the J.G. Voss Memorial Lecture in Biblical Theology. J.G. Voss, or Johannes Gerhardus Voss, was a much-loved professor who taught Bible here at Geneva College from 1954 until his retirement in 1973. His father, Gerhardus Voss, was also a professor, professor of Bible and theology, not here at Geneva College, but at Princeton Theological Seminary in the second quarter of the 20th century. The major scholarly contribution of Geneva's J.G. Voss was the taking of his father's lecture notes from Princeton Theological Seminary, editing them, and preparing them for publication. That book was published in 1948 under his father's name as Biblical Theology, Old and New Testaments. This book has influenced several generations now of pastors and scholars in the Reformed tradition. In past years, Raymond Voss, one of the sons of J.G. Voss, has joined us for this annual lecture. Uh, unfortunately, I just learned uh, yesterday that uh, Ray has been in the hospital for the last couple of weeks and is unable to be here uh, with us. Our prayers go out uh, to Ray uh, for a speedy recovery. Uh, just curious, are there any other members of the Voss family here tonight? I don't see any. Well, let's pray for Ray Voss and his family. And now on to tonight's speaker. Uh, it is indeed a pleasure to introduce Dr. Kevin Van Hooser. Dr. Van Hooser currently serves as research professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. Previous to his time at Trinity Deerfield, he served as Blanchard Professor of Theology at Wheaton College. And previous to that, he served as senior lecturer in Theology and Religious Studies at New College in the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. 
He has published and or edited many books and articles, including The Drama of, of Doctrine, A Canonical Linguistic Approach to Christian Theology. Uh, we'll have uh, one of his other books available for purchase uh, after his lecture uh, titled Theology and the Mirror of Scripture, A Mere Evangelical Account. And these books will be available uh, right over here to my, to my right and to your left. Tonight's lecture is titled Starology, Ontology, and the Travail of Biblical Narrative. And we'll let Dr. Van Hooser explains what he, explain what he means by, by that. Let's give a hearty Geneva College welcome to Dr. Kevin Van Hooser. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here all day. It's been a full day. Uh, this is my third official event, but I've had some good meals with you all as well. So sorry this day was so short. I'm actually a member of a department called the Department of Biblical and Systematic Theology. So tonight, I hope you don't mind if I try to work out my identity more clearly. Also, I assure you, that by the end of the evening, you will know what this title means. But thank you for coming, even if it wasn't transparent in the beginning. What does it mean for theology to read the Bible theologically? Does it mean expounding the theology already in the Bible? Or does it refer to submitting the Bible to some interpretive process whose product is theology? Most Christian theologians want to be biblical because Jesus was. Yet it's not entirely clear what kind of project being biblical is when it comes to doing theology. Lutheran or Reformed dogmaticians may think they're expositing the theology of the Bible itself, the theology already in the Bible, but then they accuse each other of foisting alien doctrines onto Scripture thus prompting biblical exegetes to pronounce a pox upon both their houses in order to preserve the theology of the biblical authors themselves. Now, fully to address my opening question requires providing a bit of background. So what follows is the story of a line and a circle, how they split apart, and how they may yet come together again. The line and circle in question are creations of Gerhardus Voss, metaphors for the disciplines of biblical and systematic theology, respectively. The two theological disciplines are indeed related. They have the Bible in common. Yet it's hard to tell whether their story is a love story or a family feud, the story of a strained marriage or a fateful sibling rivalry. Just what is the relationship between biblical and systematic theology? But whatever we conclude on that, it's at least a story about two different ways of reading the Bible theologically. Now, in his 1894 inaugural address as professor of biblical theology at Princeton Theological Seminary, Gerhardus Voss defined biblical theology as, quote, the exhibition of the organic process of supernatural revelation in its historic continuity and multiformity. Stated differently, 
Biblical theology closely follows the history of special revelation. Voss says that theology will be biblical in the full sense only when it is only when it not merely derives its material from the Bible, but also accepts at the hands of the Bible the order in which the material is grouped. A biblical passage is not, you see, a proof text to be taken out of context. It's rather located within a pattern of God-given contexts, all of which are encompassed by what Voss calls the redemptive historical context. As his contemporary champion, Richard Gaffin, puts it, biblical revelation has its own structure resident in the subject matter itself, the history of redemption. So biblical theology is different from systematic theology, we can say as a first approximation, because it hews closely to the history of special revelation in the Bible itself. Now, towards the end of this inaugural lecture, Gerhardus Voss explains that while both biblical and dogmatic theology reflect on the Bible, they do so with different principles of organization. Quote, in the one case, this constructive principle is systematic and logical, whereas in the other case, it is purely historical. In other words, Systematic theology endeavors to construct a circle. Biblical theology seeks to reproduce a line. Now, this was more than one, a one-off illustration. Voss returns to it some 30 years later in his magnum opus, Biblical Theology. There, he says, that both biblical and systematic theology do something with the revealed truth deposited in the Bible. This is Voss again. He says, biblical theology draws a line of development. Systematic theology draws a circle. I suspect that for uh, man, for many, when they hear the word circle, they may think, if it's an allusion to systematic theology, of gears. The biblical theological mind is organic. The systematic theological mind more mechanical, or so it would seem. Now, fast forward to the present. Those who draw lines now have their own journals and professional organizations. They speak their own language. They've got their own culture, as do those who draw circles. What began as a division of labor has become an ugly ditch, forcing readers of the Bible to take sides or different career paths, the career path of biblical theology or biblical studies or systematic theology. But pastors have, a, have to have a foot in both camps. On occasion, hostilities break out and the line circle contrast begins to resemble the two warring gangs in West Side Story, the sharks and the jets. This gives rise to my subtitle, Once More Unto the Breach a reference to Shakespeare's Henry V, and to the dividing wall of hostility that all too often characterizes the relationship between biblical scholarship and systematic theology. So, what follows tonight is an attempt once more to go into that breach, perhaps to build a bridge and repair a broken relationship. 
I want to begin by briefly rehearsing the birth of biblical theology in the 18th century and trace its story up to its first death in 1961. As we'll see, the cause of death had to do with the failure to connect biblical narrative to the reality of God. That's the ontology of my title. Then next, we'll consider the rebirth of biblical theology in the late 20th century and the way in which, according to some evangelicals, systematic theology must decrease in order for biblical theology to increase. And then I'll turn to a specific interpretive issue, how the gospel accounts of Jesus' death should be read theologically. In particular, which discourse, biblical or systematic theology, best explains why Jesus had to die on the cross for us and our salvation. The travail of biblical narrative of my title pertains to how we move from the biblical author's categories of thinking to categories that make sense to us today. That's the travail, that's the work, that's the labor, moving from yesterday to today. And the cross marks the spot where the tension between lines and circles comes near the breaking point. The climax of our story proposes a new way of thinking about the relationship of biblical and systematic theology. I'll be interested to hear what you think. And it proposes a third dimension that thickens the circle of systematic theology into a sphere. We won't leave Voss behind, though, but retrieve another aspect neglected of his thought, a fruitful but underappreciated suggestion that will allow biblical interpreters to enter into the promised land of ontology. Well, once upon a time, there was no distinction between line and circle. It was not until the Enlightenment that biblical theology was taken out like Adam's rib from the chest of theology simpliciter. What God had joined together Johann Philipp Gabler rent asunder. The origins of biblical theology as a distinct strategy for reading scripture, freed from confessional constraints, may be traced to Gopler's 1787 lecture on the distinction between biblical and dogmatic theology. Gopler was bothered by the conflict of theological opinions in his day. And he saw biblical theology as an academic discipline whose special vocation was to provide historically accurate descriptions of the ideas of the biblical authors themselves, regardless of whether they lined up with Luther or Calvin or someone else. So doing so would allow the difference between the theology in the Bible and theology in accordance with the Bible to become clear. Now, neither Voss nor Gopler have copyright on the term biblical theology. They use it in different senses. And it's important for us to be aware of the discontinuities and continuities. Both associate biblical theology with history, though for Voss, the accent is on history as the medium of God's revelation and redemption. While for Gopler, the emphasis is on history as the context for human language and thought. 
So there's continuity. They're both interested in history, but Voss is more interested in God's acts than Goffler. This is no minor disagreement. It's a fateful distinction that leads in two different directions. Ultimately, theology or religious studies. For in just a scant hundred years later, New Testament theology, following Goppler's path, had become in the hands of William Vreda an exercise in setting forth the history of early Christianity, an academic project that could be pursued apart from Christian faith or even belief in God. New Testament theology in the Goppler Vreda line became a species of religious studies. Religious studies studies human beings and their religion, not God. So there's a huge difference between theology and religious studies. Uh, now, many evangelical exegetes sympathize with Goppler's concern not to let systematic theologians run roughshod over the particulars of the biblical text. The voices of the biblical authors deserve to be heard, not shouted down by Lutheran or Reformed dogmatic industrial complexes. On the other hand, reading scripture with no theological presuppositions means reading it as if one were a methodological naturalist, reading scripture as if it were like any other book, in which case the Bible becomes a document of the university, a historically and culturally conditioned expression of human religion rather than the canon of the church, an authoritative word of God. What Goffler ultimately and maybe inadvertently launched was nothing less than a new atheological, I won't call it atheist, but an atheological way of reading the Bible. Now, the so-called biblical theology movement that dominated the North American scene from 1945 to 1961 resisted the tendency to become merely religious studies. One of the movement's leading proponents, G.E. Wright, attempted to read the Bible in a historical critical manner, and like Voss, he wanted his theological cake too, by focusing on God's revelation in history. So in his influential book, God Who Acts, Wright defines biblical theology as, quote, the confessional recital of the redemptive acts of God in a particular history. I think Wright's heart was in the right place. He wanted to read the Bible theologically for the church. But alas, like the walls of Jericho, the biblical theology movement suffered a spectacular collapse. And those who want to keep doing biblical theology need to keep in mind and learn from its failure. As the subtitle of Wright's book hints, biblical theology describes Israel's and the church's confessional recital of God's mighty acts. He was particularly concerned with the Exodus Covenant Act. Wright identifies revelation, you see, with God's mighty acts in history. Not with the words in scripture, with God's acts in history. Now critics spotted several problems with the biblical theology movement. But I want to focus on one only, the notion of an act of God. The key text to mention here 
is Langdon Gilkey's 1961 essay, Cosmology, Ontology, and the Travail of Biblical Language. That's where I got my title. I've not plagiarized, but I creatively appropriated Gilkey's title. And in, in Gilkey's essay, essay, he effectively demolished, almost single-handedly, an entire movement in a scant 11 pages. Now, Gilkey was a systematic theologian from the University of Chicago. Uh, interestingly enough, he was also a hostile witness in the Arkansas, Arkansas creation trial, uh, way back then, uh, where the state of Arkansas wanted to treat creation as a science and therefore teach it in the public schools. Gilkey came in as a hostile witness, as someone arguing against creation science. So he has a history of uh, debunking movements. In any case, he acknowledges Wright's aim as a biblical theology who wants to adhere as closely as possible to the biblical author's own vocabulary. And yet, Wright, or Gilkey rather, finds Wright's proposal very confusing. Here's what he says. He says, its worldview or cosmology is modern, while its theological language is biblical and orthodox. You see, on the one hand, the biblical theology movement was, was very modern. They used the biblical critical techniques. They maintained the modern belief in historical conditioning and the causal continuum. They were moderns. But on the other hand, they wanted to read the Bible um, faithfully, and they posited God's divine action. So Gilkey was confused. Do they believe the causal continuum is closed, or do they believe that God really acts in it? What's at stake here, you see, is the framework with which one reads biblical narrative. And Gilkey faults the biblical theology movement for its cross-eyed reading of Scripture. That is, for reading Scripture with two incompatible frameworks at the same time, ancient and modern. Now, speaking for moderns like himself, Gilkey says, we believe that the biblical, principle, the biblical people lived in the same causal continuum of space and time in which we live, and so one in which no divine voices were heard. He's a methodological naturalist, and he thinks that on the one hand, the biblical theology movement was filled with methodological naturalists, but they kept talking about acts of God. Now, Gilkey is not simply giving the standard liberal critique of supernaturalism. He's rather pointing out the internal contradiction in the approach of the biblical theology movement itself. He says, its claims for history as the framework of revelation were bogus because the history appealed to was not real history. For right, God acts, but not the way humans do. That is, as part of the causal continuum. And so now the significance of the subtitle of Wright's book becomes clear. The real focus of his biblical theology is not the mighty acts of God. It's the confessional recital of those acts in Israel and the church. In the final analysis, then, says Gilkey, the Bible ends up being descriptive not of the acts of God, as the title of Wright's book would suggest, but rather of Hebrew religion. That's the emphasis on the confessional recital. 
So Gilkey says, God may be the grammatical subject of the biblical verbs, but the object of biblical theology is religion. Anthropology, not theology at all. Now this is in sharp contrast, the biblical theology movement, sharp contrast with Calvin and most pre-modern readers for whom God did what the text said he did. But the members of the biblical theology movement were unable to say exactly what God had done. For example, they reject a literal interpretation of God speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. So, on closer inspection, the acts of God appear less mighty than mighty confusing. And this is why Gilkey speaks of the travail of biblical language. Defining the mighty acts of God is painful. The biblical theology movement labored hard at it and ultimately failed. So the biblical authors spoke univocally of God, whereas modern readers tend to speak of God only analogically. What exactly is an act of God? To what kind of historical event does it refer? Now, according to Gilkey, the biblical theology movement has downsized the acts of God. They're not ordinary events in space-time. Rather, this is Gilkey's best guess, by act of God, the biblical theology movement refers to the inward incitements of a religious response uh, to ordinary events in the space-time continuum. In other words, there wasn't uh, a great event, a parting of the Red Sea, but somehow whatever happened in Israel's exodus from Egypt, they confessed God's act as this mighty act. But that's an expression of their religious experience. It's not a recording of a historical act. I hope you see how devastating a critique Gilkey's essay was. It really did stop the biblical theology movement in its track. They didn't have an answer. They weren't able to say whether the mighty acts of God were objective acts in history or faith's way of interpreting ordinary events or some combination of the two. Gilkey's verdict, having tried to understand the biblical theology movement then, is this. He says, what we desperately need is a theological ontology. Only an ontology of events that specifies what God's relation to events is like could fill the now empty analogy of his mighty acts. So an ontology is simply an account of what things are. What things are. And without an account of what things are, the language of the Bible and the language of theology remain hopelessly equivocal. We simply don't know what we're talking about unless we can specify what we're talking about ontologically. And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So if we're prepared to understand in our own terms what the biblical authors are saying in theirs, we need a clearer conception of the reality of God. We need to be able to say how God acts. We need, as Gilkey's calling for, a theological ontology. Let me put it this way. Biblical interpreters who lack ontology 
are a little bit like the Athenians who worship an unknown god. Now, Gilkey's essay, published in 1961, marks what I'm calling the first death of biblical theology. Though what passed away was neither Gobbler's or Voss's version, but an unstable mixture of the two. The landscape 50 years later is remarkably different. Biblical theology is alive and well, especially in evangelical circles. You can even get a PhD in biblical theology if you want to go to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Does this mean we've solved Gilkey's challenge? That we've articulated the theological ontology? Or does it simply mean we've lost sight of Gilkey's challenge? Interestingly, through all the twists and turns of the discipline, one factor has remained constant. Scholars continue to depict the relationship between biblical and systematic theology in terms of line and circle. So far, so Vossian. Yet, whereas Voss emphasizes history as the medium of divine activity, there is a new accent in contemporary evangelical biblical theology on history as the medium for human experience and thought. For example, my colleague Don Carson says that biblical theology resorts primarily to the categories of the biblical authors themselves. The accent is on recovering what the human authors were thinking in their historical context. Uh, James Hamilton at Southern Baptist Theological Cemetery concurs. The goal of biblical theology is not merely to describe, but to adopt the perspective of the biblical authors, to see things the way the biblical authors interpreted and understood them. And this means becoming familiar with the Bible's symbolic universe, that is, the symbols and stories that communicate the worldview of the biblical authors. Hamilton says, we want to see the world the way they did. We want to think about it that way, too. Indeed, the biblical symbols inform who we are in the story as well and how we should live as we wait for the story's end. Now, this type of biblical theology preaches, but it also raises the question, what should we do about systematics? It's fair to say that systematic theology as a strategy for reading scripture is today viewed by many evangelical biblical scholars with some suspicion. Let me be clear. I'm not accusing anyone of hate crimes, uh, just a little prejudice. And the bias against systematic theology is best seen when evangelical scholars describe biblical theology as working inductively from the Bible, whereas systematic theologians, by organizing things topically, impose a structure not given in Scripture itself. Whereas biblical theology sticks with the concepts and categories of the biblical authors, Systematic theology uses categories drawn from elsewhere, from church tradition or contemporary culture. At one point, Don Carson depicts systematics as positively anti-line. He says, its organizing principles do not encourage the expiration of the Bible's plot line, except incidentally, the categories of systematic theology are logical and hierarchical, not temporal. The basic problem, then, is that systematic theologians, it's alleged, 
read the Bible with categories drawn from elsewhere than the Bible. And Carson thinks it is very hard work to be informed by them without being controlled by them. He might as well have quoted the Apostle Paul. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive systematics, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. If Gilkey was suspicious of biblical theology for its lack of ontology, we might say that evangelical exegetes tend to be suspicious of systematic theology because of what they consider to be an excess of ontology. I wonder whether some evangelicals subscribe, even if only subconsciously, to some variation of the Hellenization thesis, von Harnack's claim that the Nicene doctrine of the Incarnation was the result of a Hellenizing process through which Greek metaphysical categories were imposed inappropriately on the claims of the New Testament. Carson, for his part, is content to observe that systematic theology is simply further removed from the Bible than exegesis and that biblical theology serves as a bridge between exegesis and theology. Don likes to remind me that exegetes are closer to the Bible than systematic theologians. And then I say, yes, Don, but theologians are closer to God. <laughs> We're friends. <laughs> However, if biblical and systematic theology are to live harmoniously in the same house, caring for the same church of God, then they need to decide how to work together. Who washes up after dinner and who takes out the trash? Now, generalizations are always precarious. There are potential counterexamples under every bush. But it does seem to me, and a few others, that there's a crisis of systematic theology in our churches. Carl Truman sounded the alarm way back in 2002 when he suggested that the rebirth of biblical theology among evangelicals, which was a good thing, may be in danger of becoming too much of a good thing. We understand that the Bible contains a narrative that culminates in Christ, but the triumph of biblical theology, says Truman, has come at the very high price of a neglect of the theological tradition. To put it in Vossian terms, Truman fears that Attention to the economy, how God acts in history as recounted by the biblical narrative, has led to a neglect of ontology, the study of who God is in, his, in himself in eternity, and the kinds of issues hammered out in the church councils over centuries that were all about the doctrine of God. The line has swallowed up the circle. The danger is that a divine economy without a divine ontology, is unstable and will eventually collapse. In fact, I think the collapse has already begun and exhibit number one is open theism. Voss, in his inaugural lecture, calls biblical theology dogmatic theology's younger sister. But in Truman's mind, the more apt description might be systematic theology's naughty little sister, whose behavior has turned systematic theology into a poor relation and historical theology into a useless appendix. 
Now, Truman is himself a historical theologian, so he has a vested interest in these things. But he's not simply bemoaning the low status his discipline is held by evangelicals. No, his chief concern is that an exaggerated emphasis on the divine economy cuts the church off from probing ontological questions that the text itself demands. The real concern pertains to what it means to read the Bible theologically. We need ontology as well as economy if we're to do justice to the Bible's teaching on who God is and what God has done. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done in and through the death of Jesus Christ. What I'm calling the travail of biblical narrative reaches its apex just here in starology, from the Greek staros, which means cross. Starology, then, is the study of the cross, of Jesus' cross. The doctrine of the atonement provides the perfect case study that penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit of theological discourse, namely into biblical and systematic theology. And once again, a right, not a GE, but an NT, stands in the center of the action. Tom Wright is in many respects the quintessential evangelical biblical scholar. He's a believing biblical theologian who, above all, wants to get the New Testament right, even if that means going against human tradition. He's like a 21st century reformer. Now, getting the biblical authors right means reading them on their own terms and in their own contexts, which is to say, in accordance with their first century historical horizon. That is why Second Temple Judaism is so important to Tom Wright. It represents the shared framework of thought with which the apostles tried to express the significance of Jesus' death. This is also why Wright is so suspicious of systematic theology. Both patristic and Reformation atonement theories impose external interests and foreign categories such as metaphysical participation or penal substitution that end up, says Wright, distorting the biblical story, which is not about essences and exchanges, but it's about exoduses and exiles. Wright insists that the biblical author's theology is tied up with the story that communicates their worldview. During the period of Second Temple Judaism, in which Jesus ministered and the apostles wrote the New Testament, the prevailing meta-narrative was that the nation of Israel, though physically returned from Babylon and Assyria, was still in a theological state of exile from God. Jesus believed that his mission was tied up with Israel's return from exile, which is to say, Yahweh's return to Zion. Many, if not most, Second Temple Jews hoped for the new exodus, the final return from exile. Now, in this telling, Israel's exile was a punishment for sin, but also a sacrifice for sin, so that her forlorn punishment in a foreign land becomes a means through which sin was expiated. What's happening here is Wright is trying to use biblical categories, exile and exodus, 
to make sense of the death of Jesus. So the hope is that when Israel finally returned from exile, the temple would once again be inhabited by the Lord, and that would represent the forgiveness of sins. Wright says that Paul, the apostle, believed that the exile had been brought to an end by Jesus' death on the cross. So, for Wright, return from exile is the narrative template or the script that Jesus was following and performing in his own life and ministry. Wright says, Jesus was proclaiming and performing the signs of national deliverance, calling Israel to exile-ending repentance, all of which would result in a new exodus, the renewal of the covenant, a rebuilt temple, the reconstitution of the Jewish nation, and the vindication of Israel over the pagan nations. So this explanation that Wright gives of the cross, do you see how many biblical categories it's drawing on? He's using categories that he believes were uppermost in the minds of Second Temple Judaism Jews. So everything depends on getting the framework right. And Wright, Tom Wright says that narrative analysis sheds a positive flood of light on passage after passage of tricky exegesis and problem after problem in the theological coherence of Paul's letters. If we have this narrative template right, it's like having light spread all over the New Testament. So, for Wright, reading the Bible theologically means thinking with the biblical narrative on its own terms, that is, within the first century Second Temple Judaism framework and the, particularly the idea that Israel was still in exile. So biblical theology is a line that connects the dots between Israel's exodus and Jesus' new exodus, between Israel's and Adam's exile and the return from exile. The new Passover, liberation from enslaving powers, is accomplished through the rescue from exile. So everything depends on interpreting Jesus within this story. Wright says, take it out of the story, the cross, and you'll put it into a different story, most likely some version of an abstract works contract or something like that. And that's a dig at systematic theology and the concept of penal substitution. Wright dismisses that as a modern answer to a medieval question about how guilty individuals get right with an angry God through God's punishing Jesus. I want to concede the point. It is possible to interpret Jesus' cross with conceptual schemes drawn from elsewhere that distort the story. The most extreme example of that for me would be the philosopher Hegel, who reduces biblical symbols to metaphysical concepts without remainder. Hegel transforms the historic Good Friday, the account of Jesus' crucifixion, into what has been called a speculative Good Friday, a kind of symbol for a philosophical process, according to which God, which for Hegel would be being, absorbs death, non-being, resulting in resurrection, which means new being or becoming. You probably don't experience Holy Week in the terms of a Hegelian dialectic, which is just as well. But this isn't systematic theology. This is philosophical theology. 
And it's rooted in, I believe it's sub-evangelical. But my fear is that Tom Wright doesn't see, many significant, doesn't see any significant difference between systematic theology and what Hegel is talking about. And so he doesn't have a, a legitimate place for systematic theology. Systematic theology does work with concepts taken from elsewhere than the first century, but for Wright this is always and everywhere a mistake because if we're going to read the story rightly, we have to interpret Jesus' death in the same way that the early Christians did. The circle then that is systematic theology is for Wright a noose that strangles the particular voices of the biblical authors. And Wright's exasperation with systematics is palpable in a recent essay he's written on the historical Paul. He comments, if there is supposed to be a marriage of biblical studies and theology, then, as Paul says about marriage in Ephesians 5, but in a different way, it is a great mystery. The core of Wright's critique, again, is that systematic theology neglects the first century Jewish context and therefore distorts Paul's and other biblical authors' texts. If you want to understand how ideas and phrases are used in the first century, he says, you have, you have to look at them in terms of the first century, not the fourth century, that is, not in Nicene categories, still less in the 16th century, that is, Reformation categories. So again, for Wright, systematics stumbles when it forgets the overarching story of Israel's exodus, exile, and return from exile in return for some other scheme of categories, maybe Plato. It is the theologian's flight from history, says Tom, that has done the real damage. The New Testament authors weren't telling Jesus stories and embellishing them with God language, he says. They were telling God's stories, the gospel story that God had visited and rescued his people in the person of Christ and proved himself faithful. That's the big story according to Tom Wright. Now, can his narrative, Wright's narrative, bear all the theological weight he puts onto these symbolic events of exodus and exile? This is precisely the question about the travail of biblical narrative to which my title refers. It's Wright's Second Temple Jewish God story that's doing all the hard theological work. But, as Richard Hayes has observed, Wright's story is not exactly any of the specific stories actually told by the evangelists. Rather, it's a critically abstracted construct the master meta-narrative of the Bible as told from within the perspective of late Second Temple Judaism. Now, ironically, this leads to the suppression of the voices of the particular biblical authors, just as systematic theology allegedly does. Other critics say there is no evidence that first century Palestinian Jews actually thought of themselves as still in exile. According to James Dunn, the most serious weakness of Wright's grand hypothesis is his inability to demonstrate that the narrative of return from exile was a controlling factor in Jesus' own teaching. And Wright has run into trouble sometimes when he interprets the parable of the prodigal son 
as a kind of summary of the same story. Where in the parable of the prodigal son does exile and return from exile come in? Is that what it's about? Michael Byrd, similarly, worries that exile is perhaps far too plastic of a concept to be regarded as the conceptual framework for an entire Jewish metanarrative. So, I hope you're getting the picture. Both biblical and systematic theologians want to read the Bible theologically, but the relationship between the disciplines has been strained to the breaking point. No one wants a divorce, but Wright is not shy in citing irreconcilable hermeneutical differences. So, it's past time for marriage counseling. But in what follows, I propose a way forward that involves thinking through biblical narrative in historical, redemptive historical, and for lack of a better term, ontological historical perspectives. I take my cue from the historical theologian Alistair McGrath. I love this quote. The genesis of doctrine lies in the exodus from uncritical repetition of the narrative heritage of the past. In other words, if you want to understand the story, you have to do more than parrot it. He says, narratives give rise to doctrine whenever we're puzzled by something in the story, such as, why did Jesus have to die a bloody death? That question about the story gives rise to the doctrine of the atonement. Let me generalize that point and say this. Narrative raises questions that only ontology can answer. So we begin with ontology. My main claim here is that ontological clarification is not a Greek colonization of biblical narrative, but rather an essential ingredient in reading the Bible rightly. Reading scripture rightly involves knowing not only something about the language, which is very important, but it involves knowing something not only about what authors have said, what their terms mean, it involves knowing what they're talking about, sense and reference. Historical context and biblical theology is crucial for the first part, getting the sense right, but what about the second? Gerald Bray claims that the great contribution which patristic biblical hermeneutics can make to modern debates lies at the ontological level. That's the level where we wrestle with questions about reference, such as who exactly is Jesus? That's the question Jesus asked his apostles. Who do you say that I am? Rightly to understand the passion narrative, Jesus then requires not only the first century Palestinian context, it really does require the fourth century Nicene categories without which We can't say what kind of who Jesus was. That's the force behind Robert Jensen's what-if question. What if the church's dogma were a necessary hermeneutical principle of historical reading because it describes the true ontology of historical being? Remember Gilkey's concern about the lack of attention to ontology And Truman's concern that we not lose the ontological aspect in our zeal for the economy. What if 
the doctrine of the Trinity were necessary for the right understanding of the story of Jesus' death. What if? Well, systematic theologians are not the only ones advocating for more ontology. No less a biblical theologian than Brevard Childs contends that biblical interpretation is incomplete unless and until it illumines the subject matter or race of the text, the one God made known in Jesus Christ. Significantly, Child says that it's a fatal mistake to deal with the identity of God only in terms of its historical sequence. That restricts the doctrine of God to the divine workings within a historical trajectory of past, present, and future, God, Christ, Spirit, as if they came one after the other, and that leads to the heresy of modalism. So Childs understands by ontology simply the reflection on the subject matter of the text. The point is, without ontological reflection, it becomes difficult, if not impossible, to talk about the God of the old and the new as a unified being. Now, please don't misunderstand. I believe that biblical theology, especially as Voss views it, as attentiveness to the redemptive historical context, is absolutely necessary. My concern is simply that we not flatten out biblical understanding to first century horizons in our zeal to be biblical. And flat is the operative concept. We have, after all, already compared biblical theology to a line. So let's let geometrics stand for two-dimensional thinking, the kind that employs lines and circles to account for things. And here I'm reminded of Edwin Abbott's 1884 classic book, Flatland, a romance of many dimensions. Has anybody read Flatland? It's popular in many disciplines. It's a satirical work of science fiction that uses characters in a two-dimensional world as a vehicle for offering critical commentary on Abbott's Victorian society and their hierarchical values. You see, the inhabitants of Flatland are squares and lines, triangles and circles, whose whole experience is confined to a two-dimensional plane. Call it a horizon of meaning. A line is one-dimensional because there's only one direction it can go. For example, east-west. And in Flatland, there's a second dimension, north-south. Still, all the experience of the inhabitants of Flatland takes place on something like a tabletop, on a graph with X and Y axes only. Now, from the perspective of an inhabitant of Flatland, even circles and triangles look like lines. So try to do this imaginary experience if you're having trouble with this, but imagine a penny being put on a table. And then imagine you lowering your eye level so that your eye is at the level of the table. What will the penny look like? Will it look round? No, only if you look at the penny from above. If you look at it from the level of the table, a penny, which is round, will look like a line. So the narrator in Flatland happens to be a square. In fact, his name, appropriate enough, is A Square. And here's how he describes a visit by a friend of his, which happens to be a triangle. If our friend comes closer to us, 
we see his line become larger. If he leaves us, his line becomes smaller. And again, this makes sense, right? If you have a penny on a table and push it away, the line is going to get smaller. And if you put, keep pushing it, the line becomes a point. Abbott's story, however, turns around the narrator's vis- visitation by a three-dimensional sphere. That's the plot. A three-dimensional sphere visits Flatland. Now, the square is unable to fathom what is happening. Put yourselves in his angles. When a three-dimensional sphere intersects a two-dimensional plane, the result is always a circle, if you look at it from the top of the table, or if seen by uh, someone on the plane of Flatland where there's no up and down, even a sphere that enters it will appear as a line, as I hope the illustration shows. So the square, the narrator, has great difficulty comprehending the ontology of the sphere, even when the sphere speaks, because the sphere does speak. He says, I am a circle and a more perfect circle than any in Flatland, but to speak more accurately, I am many circles in one. This is the I am revelation at the heart of Flatland. But again, the square is completely unable to comprehend what a sphere is. And Abbott, who was a mathematician, a school teacher, and also an Anglican priest, playfully calls this spherical dimension the gospel of the three dimensions. Chapter 17 of Flatland is entitled, How the Sphere, Having in Vain Tried Words, Resorted to Deeds. He really wants to reveal himself as a sphere to the square. And the rest of the book recounts how the sphere makes the square an apostle of the third dimension, depth. Now, Tom Wright refers to his project of interpreting Paul's writings in light of this first century Second Temple historical context, Wright calls that thick description. But in light of my parable about flatland, I think his claim falls somewhat flat. Biblical scholars are, by training, inclined to listen for the voice of human authors in their original historical context. But theologians have to do more. They have to understand both what the authors are saying and what they are talking about. Biblical scholars, you might say, explore the length and width of a text. Systematic theologians uh, explore the depth. The church needs both disciplines working in tandem if it is to hear everything that God is saying in Scripture. My claim, then, is that reading Scripture theologically is a three-dimensional affair involving biblical, historical, and systematic theology alike. So let's proceed from a two-dimensional geometric model for relating biblical and systematic theology to a three-dimensional theodramatic model. Theodramatic. I agree with Reinhold Niebuhr. The Bible conceives life as a drama in which human and divine actions create the dramatic whole. There are ontological presuppositions for this drama but they are not spelled out. Now, we don't need to leave Voss behind. 
Because both in his inaugural lecture and in biblical theology, Voss says, quote, the Bible is not a dogmatic handbook, but a historical book full of dramatic interest. And I want to build on that Vossian insight, noting in particular how drama, as story made flesh, is thicker than narrative and calls for ontological reflection. So here's my thesis. The line of redemptive historical development is actually the plot line of a unified redemptive historical drama. And the circle of systematic theology is actually a kind of plot analysis, a sphere that plumbs the ontological depths of who and what the actors in the drama are. At the heart of Christian theology, there's this continual interpenetration of dramatic and ontological act and being. The history of redemption is not flat, a two-dimensional, this-worldly series of causes and effects, but it's the work of the triune God who transcends our flatland. The texts assume God's redemptive and revelatory activity, and any attempt to seal off New Testament studies from the Old Testament or the concerns of systematic theology systematically distort the subject matter. As John Webster has reminded us, the missions of the Son and Spirit that make up the economy of redemption, the story, are grounded in the eternal processions that make up the Trinitarian life of God. So Webster puts it, theology proper precedes and governs economy. What this means is that we'll only understand God's mighty acts rightly when we can identify the divine agent acting. And this can best be accomplished by contemplating the depth of God in himself, out of which the economy of his saving acts proceed. It's the vocation of systematic theology always and everywhere to remind us that God belongs to a different ontological order. There's creation and there's the creator. These are two different ontological orders. Elsewhere, I call Webster's prompt for us never to forget to ground the economy in the ontology Webster's law of imminent domain, the imminent trinity, grounds our understanding of the economic trinity. Now, the drama of the cross of Christ raises questions that only ontology can answer. That's my claim. The drama of the Christ raises questions that only ontology can answer. Francis Young says the New Testament consistently presents the activity of Christ and the Spirit as the work of the one true God. Under pressure, that relationship between Father and Son and Son and Father and Spirit, these relationships have to be articulated in ways that the New Testament writers themselves may not have envisaged, but it's there implicit in dramatic or narrative form. Webster again is on the money. If we only look at the saving economy from the angle of its temporal occurrence, 
we may mischaracterize the kind of temporal occurrence it is. It's like if we only look at the sphere from flatland, we'll never appreciate it as a sphere. The death of Jesus is good news for us and our salvation only if it is the death of the one who was homoousios, of the same nature with the Father. Trinitarian teaching instructs us then in how to read the gospel narratives rightly. And it does so by specifying the ontology of the acting subjects. The history that culminates in Jesus' cross and resurrection, when it's described in its ontological depths, is the eternal son's mission. The history of Jesus is the mission of the eternal son. Is that the category that the biblical authors themselves had in mind? It's difficult to say. It's there, but maybe not on the surface. But I want to preserve the contribution of biblical theology even as we thicken it with the perspective of systematic theology. So here is one way that I'm trying to characterize what happened on Jesus' cross that uses categories both from scripture and from systematics in order to give a thick description of why Jesus' death is for us and our salvation. Jesus accomplishes redemption by exchanging his status as covenant Lord, that is, as the eternal Son of God, for that of covenant servant, Israel's Messiah, in order to fulfill Israel and Adam's covenant vocation and receive Israel's and Adam's covenant curse, exile from God's presence in their place in order to procure the covenant blessing, filial adoption into the family of God for God's covenant people, Jews first and then Gentiles. There are a lot of biblical categories in that description, but I'm also drawing upon Nicaea to remind us that the one who did all these things is homoousios, of the same being as the father. Well, my story, which for me started at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and continued through Flatland, the Finns of Cambridge, and beyond, is now nearing its end. But I want to classify the story I've been telling ultimately as a romantic comedy because they all, line, circle, and sphere, lived happily ever after, at least if you follow my proposal. I've argued that biblical and systematic theology refer not simply to disparate ways of organizing the doctrinal content of Scripture, but to contrasting and complementary ways of reading the Bible theologically. That's important. I'm saying there are more than different principles of organization. There are different ways of reading the text that are complementary. And in particular, I've argued that systematics is itself a practice of reading scripture that attends particularly to the ontological dimension that specifies who these agents are. The three dimensions required for reading the Bible theologically correspond to three contexts. Biblical theology attends to the historical trajectory of Revelation, the line. What we might call whole Bible theology corresponds to the organic relation of all the events that make up the drama of redemption, the circle. 
And Herman Bovink calls these two dimensions the genetic synthetic readings, and they correspond to the original historical and canonical contexts, respectively. But that is not the end of the story, because, as Voss rightly reminds us, we ourselves live just as much in the New Testament as did Peter and Paul and John. What I'm calling the theodramatic dimension refers to the life of those who came after the apostles, but they're still involved in the acts of the apostles. We're still trying to live out before God with one another our response to God's word on the stage of God's world to the glory of God. Theodrama, the drama where God is the hero, but which in which we participate. Theodrama is the sphere in which Christians yesterday and today live and move and have their historical being. Again, we are actors in the drama of redemption. And we learn how to read the Bible well and how to participate fittingly by attending to church tradition and Catholic consensus to the great performances of the past, what we might call masterpiece theater. As Bavink says, only within the communion of the saints can the length and the breadth, the depth and the height of the love of God be comprehended. That's four dimensions, but never mind. The point is that historical and systematic theology help the church understand more deeply not only what the prophets and apostles have said, but what we must say and do on the basis of the prophets and apostles. In sum, biblical theology describes what the biblical authors are saying or doing in their particular contextual scenes to their particular audiences in their own particular terms and concepts. Systematic theology searches out the underlying patterns of the biblical canonical judgments and suggests ways of embodying these same theodramatic judgments, the same wisdom, you might say, for our particular cultural contexts in our particular terms and concepts. Goppler's biblical theology, the false picture that led to the fragmentation of theology into different competing disciplines, is not Voss's. When rightly understood, biblical theology is, with systematic theology, an ingredient in three-dimensional biblical interpretation. Now, my conclusion may sound paradoxical, but it should no longer be a mystery. Theology is most biblical when it is more than biblical theology. Thank you. entertain a few questions uh, here at the end. Uh, we're going to ask you to, uh, to use the mic uh, as you ask a question, and I'm going to float around the room with the microphone so that you can ask it, okay? So who has the first question? Please let it not be a mathematician. <laughs> How about a librarian? <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> uh, 
Could you give us some works that you think have done a good job of combining biblical and systematic theology, uh, preferably uh, semi-popular type? Yes. Um, can I mention one of my former doctoral students who's now a pastor? Uh, he wrote a book. Um, his name is Jeremy Treat, T-R-E-A-T. And he wrote a book on Jesus' crucifixion, uh, looking at the atonement and the kingdom. And the first half of his book looks at it in biblical theology, and the second half goes to systematic theology. Um, and the title is slipping my mind. Does anybody know the book by Jeremy Treat I'm talking about? It got a Christianity Today honorable mention for best theology book of the year uh, a couple of years ago. Ah. Sorry, I've, I've, the title slips my mind, but you'll find it. Jeremy Treat would be one. It might be called The Crucified King. I'm not sure about that. I'm always aware of the danger of systematics foisting categories, and I feel like biblical theology sort of restrains that a little yes. bit, or at least threatens to restrain it. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Whenever, uh, from the perspective of biblical theology, is there a danger whenever the historical grammatical method, which is good, is sort of pressed to the point where we almost assume that we can't understand it until we have, like, all the possible information? I've got an example in my mind where I, that came to a point with me, but um, is that a danger that, that is sort of lurking in the biblical theology that um, we sort of reinterpret uh, at odds with the perspicuity of Scripture or sort of undermining the perspicuity of Scripture? Um. Yeah, I don't think it has been a danger until recently. Again, the new perspective on Paul would be probably the best example of the danger. So it gives the impression that people who didn't appreciate Second Temple Judaism couldn't have understood Paul rightly. And that means that all of us who think the Reformers were on to something have been misled. That, that just strikes me as very implausible, and it doesn't fit with what the Bible itself says about Jesus promising to give the Spirit to the church to guide us into all truth. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work out. And then it also, um, it also is kind of a hostage to fortune, or rather a hostage to specialist scholars. You know, if they are the high priests that are the only ones who can understand Scripture, then we're in trouble because they disagree among themselves. But again, you mentioned perspicuity of Scripture. That's key. It's not that every passage is an open book, but I think it's the whole story, the whole drama is intelligible to people who don't have to have a Ph.D. in the ancient Near Eastern uh, world. So it's a, it's a, I, wouldn't, I don't know that I would lay the blame for that on biblical theology. It's just biblical studies. Biblical studies has become an academic discipline in its own right that many people pursue to the doctoral level with no particular interest in Christian faith. One of my colleagues at the University of Edinburgh taught Old Testament, although he wouldn't call it that. He called it Hebrew scriptures. He did not recognize canonical distinctions and he once confided to me that he actually preferred the religion of the Canaanites to the Jews. <laughs> and he was teaching, you know, prospective ministers in the Church of Scotland the Old Testament. John Carson. 
Yes, that's Don, how he often sounds. When he <laughs> Don Carson used to yeah. throw a, a third ingredient here beyond biblical theology and, and systematic theology, and that's exegetical theology. Uh-huh. I was wondering if you could comment on, uh, in 30 seconds or less, how exegetical theology fits within you some know, of this mix. I, I, to be honest, I'm confused by that. Uh, my former dean, Walt Kaiser, also talked about that. I, I really don't know what it is. <laughs> I mean, again, it may, I just don't know. Maybe you have a better read on it, but I, I, I'm not able to say. I really don't know what it is. Well, I, think, I think that the, the argument is, yeah. and again, it's linear, Yes. Right. That exegetical theology leads to biblical theology, which leads to systematic theology. I would just call that exegesis, I think. So I I still am confused. I don't recognize it. I don't think it has been recognized more broadly as a discipline in its own right with its own methodology. I know what exegesis is. I, I just don't have a good handle on exegetical. What I mean by that is I don't understand how he's using the term. So I think that's why I'm a little confused. I, I'm not up. I know how he uses other terms, but I just have to confess my ignorance on that one. So you'll forgive me for not knowing all the proper ter- terminology with this, but if systematic theology is... Um, bringing in outside systems, so like not, not working from within the narrative of Scripture itself, but mm-hmm. thinking about it in other terms. Mm-hmm. How do we draw the line? Where do we know where to make a distinction between systems that are helpful and yes. not? And is that a historical line, or how, how does that work? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. I'm happy to, to speak to that. So I view the formulation of the earliest creedal statements Uh, by the Western and Eastern Church Fathers with Greek categories. I view that as contextualization and almost missionary work. So I mentioned Harnack and his thesis of the Hellenization, the idea that somehow these Greek thinkers spoiled the simple clarity of the gospel. I want to flip it around. I want to say that those early church councils evangelized Greek culture. That is, they restated the biblical story in terms of Greek ontology. So with, with regard to all systems, they're all ministerial. If they don't minister the story, then they're no good. The story is what's authoritative, not the system. But my point was, we really do need some of these systems to get to the bottom of the story, to get the depth dimension. And it just so happens in God's providence that the stories entered into these cultures that gave the whole church their ecumenical, their rather Catholic statements for the whole universal church. We all benefit from that. We don't have to become Greeks. And I like to think that whenever the gospel enters a new culture and when we have to say out loud to other people how Jesus' death saves, we may not use Greek concepts, but whatever concepts we use, I like to think that the whole church benefits from that new exercise in contextualization, just as it benefited from that first exercise into Greek culture. That help? <laughs> okay. Thank, thank you very much for the very fine lecture and the and the very clear presentation. And my pretty PowerPoints. 
<laughs> and the beautiful PowerPoints. Yes, okay. Um, so you've dealt with two departments of the, of the traditional Christian theological seminary, okay, biblical department, doctrinal department. Okay, there's also typically historical theology and pastoral or so-called practical theology. Mm-hmm. So the traditional seminary has four departments. If you were to add on those other two for the moment, historical theology and pastoral theology, how would you fill out the picture that you've begun here? Again, thank you, because I didn't have time to do all that. So the four traditional disciplines that have just been named uh, were not the way it's been the whole time. They've actually come from Friedrich Schleiermacher's rejigging the university in the 19th century. And that's where we get our traditional fourfold faculty from. It used to be the same person did all four tasks, more or less. But now we're so specialized, we need different professionals. Historical theology uh, is very helpful because at its best, and I have friends who do this for me all the time, they remind us how other generations of Christians read and what they learn from reading. And it's just very, very helpful to, to get that. Um, as I was saying, we, we need to understand Nicaea and then the Reformation. And we want to understand the Reformation in their terms, just the way we want to understand the authors in their terms. But we're all talking about the same thing, and we're going deeper and deeper and deeper. And theology is simply faith-seeking understanding. And the best way to understand something is to talk about it with others. And again, we're all, we're all under the authority of Scripture. So I see historical theology as mainly contributing new layers to the history of how the Bible has been read theologically. How did Calvin read it? How did Luther read it? How did Irenaeus read it? And it thickens our appreciation for what uh, saints have seen in Scripture, not imposed on it, We still have discerning to do, to be sure, but it does give us more material and guidance. Thank you very much for a a wonderful lecture. I really appreciate it very much. I I teach at a small seminary down the road. Uh, I'm also a student of Tom Wright, so I I have a little bit of a different reading on on some of what you said about Tom. I I think you're right. You're you're correct. Be careful with the word right. Yes. I think you're, cor- you're correct that, that exile is a major theme for, for Tom. But I don't think it's a central theme for him. I think it's, it's uh, a subsidiary crater, as it were. But the major crater is, is really comes from the work of, of Schechter, who described uh, the theology of Judaism uh, in terms of monotheism election and eschatology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Tom sees the New Testament as reworking mm-hmm. those three categories in terms of the death of Christ, death and resurrection of Christ and ascending of the Spirit. Um, I think if we see Tom as, as, as doing that, I think he's more congenial to systematic theology. And, you, you find, and that's the same Tom Wright in his lectures used to say about New Testament Christology that if the fathers had not, in, had not existed, we would have to invent them. So I, I don't think his work is meant to be against systematic no, theology. Right. Uh, so I wonder if you have okay. some comments about whether that would change the picture if that was more central for, for Tom than exile. So thank you for that. Um, what you hit on 
monotheism, election, and eschatology are indeed the theological themes of which he structures Paul and the faithfulness of God. But it isn't the story he tells. The story that he still reads makes exile and exodus important. I don't know if you know the volume that looked at his work on exile. So it was in that volume, I think, that he wrote a book, um, uh, not a book, but an essay uh, on the historical Paul. And, and I don't know what the particular word was, but he engages systematic theology. He's not against systematic theology. He's simply frustrated by it. <laughs> and he doesn't understand why we keep doing what we do. Um, so I feel as though when I'm with him and talking with him that I can't speak as a systematic theologian without being criticized for not thinking in terms of the first century. Yeah, and, and I have tried so many ways to, I, you know, at one point I said, is there a crumb from your tab table that a systematic theologian could eat? I'm waiting for a crumb. I mean, it's, again, it's not that he doesn't want to talk about God and he has the categories of election and eschatology. But he, he just, I think, is very frustrated with systematic theology. And it may be that we, systematic theologians, haven't done a good job of explaining how we can read the New Testament without imposing something foreign on it. I hope my, I'd love, I'd, I'd like to see his response to what I wrote or to, tonight. And just to see if any progress was made. Yeah. That closes our uh, question and answer time. It's 8.30. Uh, but uh, if I can speak for Dr. Van Hooser, uh, feel free to stick around for a few minutes if you have any personal questions or maybe not personal questions, but other <laughs> questions uh, that, uh, that you'd like to raise. We, we thank you so much for coming tonight. Thank you very much. Let's give Dr. Van Hooser a round of applause.